this is Internet Governance Explained. Today we are going to talk about net neutrality. My name is Valentina and I am joined by Victor. Hello. For this episode we have invited Thomas Loninger, Executive Director of the Digital Rights NGO Epicenter Works in Vienna. He is a senior fellow of the Mozilla Foundation working on net neutrality in the European Union. Hello Mr. Loninger, thank you for coming. Hello, um, happy to be here. What is net neutrality about? Or how would you explain what is net neutrality to an ordinary user? So net neutrality is basically what sets the internet apart from um, telephony networks, television networks, from everything that came before. Um, you could also say net neutrality is what makes the internet such an innovative and diverse space. Because it's the principle um, much more than the technical and legal reality that makes the internet a universal medium that allows it to transport any type of data. May it be speech, like in the call that we have right now, or video, or emails, or legal documents. Um, it's the fact that uh, the internet is neutral towards the content and towards the sender and the receiver. The network serves the ends. And the applications at either end can be very innovative. You don't need a license from a telecom operator in order to start your new service. A startup does not need to negotiate compatibility with uh, whoever is transmitting the data uh, on every aspect of the Internet. And so this neutrality is really the reason for the openness and the diversity that we've seen in the last three decades. That's a great start. However... It's a bit abstract. So why should I, as a consumer, care about net neutrality? On practical terms, um, what it comes down to is the question whether or not your internet provider is allowed to interfere in your internet traffic and whether you want them to pick and choose the apps that work best or work worst on your internet connection. Um, or to make it even more closer to the reality that we sadly have to live with these days, um, do you want your internet provider to decide on the price of the gigabyte of YouTube or Vimeo traffic? Um, do you want the internet company to basically make distinctions depending on the apps and services that you use? And um, it's this type of control about the technical delivery of data, may it be blocking, throttling, prioritization or modifying traffic, and also that um, influence an ISP can have commercially about the price of data by making it more expensive or cheaper depending on the service that you use and the deals that this ISP has struck with um, the big online platforms, for example. And so this neutrality really can be boiled down to a consumer level question where it's about us as users being in control. In recent years, there's been a lot of discussion about so-called zero rating. So I wanted to ask you, what does zero rating mean and what does it have to do with net neutrality? I mentioned before the commercial discrimination that an ISP could um, utilize on their network so that they make certain types of data more expensive or cheaper. And if you completely give away the data for free and don't charge anything for it, it's called zero rating. So it's a zero price that's rated for um, these types of apps. And um, that is the 
most widely uh, uh, seen type of net neutrality um, uh, violation, particularly in Europe. And um, zero rating acts as if it is uh, giving you something for free. But if you do the economic analysis, you see that the general price for internet actually increases if you have a lot of zero rating. So on the surface, free things always sound good. And arguably, zero rating can be used for good, right? So we have uh, Wikipedia Zero, which used to be a project that provided free access to Wikipedia, uh, predominantly to countries in the global south. And uh, as we know, Wikipedia is a non-profit organization. Are these projects worth supporting? I mean, it is a clear indication that Wikipedia uh, or the Wikimedia Foundation um, decided a few years ago to abandon Wikipedia Zero. And they did it for several reasons. Um, one, it was just not successful. They believed that it would give the knowledge of the Wikipedia projects to more people in rural areas where they don't have any internet at all. And they just did not see the use, um, particularly in these rural areas where they don't have any other internet connection at all. So it was just not successful on a pure um, statistical benchmark. Mm -hmm. And then the main driver why they decided to abandon the project was because ultimately it, it was running foul to the mission of Wikipedia, making the sum of all knowledge available to all. And the sum of all knowledge um, is not just Wikipedia, it's the whole internet. And it's, it's right. also the fact that the circumstances in which Wikipedia was possible as an online project um, would be heavily undermined by things like Wikipedia Zero. Imagine Brockhaus and other encyclopedias um, would have started in, what was it, like um, um, uh, 2001 when uh, Wikipedia came to be, we just had the 20th anniversary, if they would already had a zero rating deal out in existence. And so there would be a huge competition against such a community project as Wikipedia, and they would have never managed to gain traction. So when I spoke with the policy people and uh, the real activists on the ground from Wikipedia, mm -hmm. they at one point acknowledged my argument that Wikipedia should not uh, destroy the circumstances that made a project like Wikipedia possible in the first place. and. The problem here is if we allow these types of deals, then we create new market entry barriers. And um, ultimately, this really runs foul to the idea of innovation without permission that made the internet so innovative. And I can give you a great uh, testimony for that. Um, if you think back a few years, Netflix, the video streaming company, was once a strong advocate for net neutrality. And then when the Trump administration came uh, into power and it was clear that they would kill net neutrality in the US. Um, the CEO of Netflix actually said in a call with his shareholders where he is obliged to tell the truth that they shouldn't worry because now Netflix is so big enough that they don't need net neutrality anymore. They are now big enough so that they can make the deals with the telcos. Mm -hmm. So all types of net neutrality violations always have a cost. And it's the cost of the innovation that has yet to happen. 
So uh, you've already talked about included data in mobile phone plans. And um, I've experienced this personally when I personally have uh, looked for a new mobile phone plan and uh, these are still quite expensive in Germany by comparison and usually there's not a lot of data that's included. And now some providers, as you say, uh, zero rate Spotify, for example, so I can listen to as much music as I want wherever I am. And now you're telling me that that's a terrible thing and we really shouldn't be doing this, but as a consumer, what's the alternative? I don't have infinite money. And that's also why we don't want to lay this burden on the individual consumer. That would be the wrong choice. Um, that's why I spent many, many years of my life fighting fiercely for enshrining net neutrality protections into European law and why we have a regulation that safeguards the neutrality of every type of internet that's offered in, in the European economic area. And um, that is something where we were quite successful on many fronts, but on the issue of zero rating, we could not get the strong protections that we wanted to have. And that's why you still see those offers in the market. And what you the, the other thing that you mentioned about the particularities of the German market, um, Germany, besides Portugal, is one of the countries in Europe with the worst type of internet access. So like <laughs> nobody else, you pay so much for so little of service. And the main argument that, that I and many other telecom experts and economists would bring is that it's about a lack of competition. It's because the German market really lacks sound consumer protection regulation in the telecom area. You have strong lock-in effects of 24-month contract durations mm -hmm. that renew themselves every so often with a few months more. And so it is not really easy for a consumer to switch between providers. There aren't that many providers to choose from from the beginning. And um, the competition that would be possible and that has proven to work in so many other countries in Europe uh, is just uh, not happening in, in, in Germany. I also have to say here that even having net neutrality it's just one thing, then you also need to apply it in practice. And that means enforcement is a crucial question of actually delivering net neutrality to the people. And there we also see great differences between countries. Some regulators really take their job seriously and do a lot to make it, to get it right. And other regulators are just purely um, out there to be friends with the industry. And um, there are revolving doors between the, the industry and the agency that should control the industry. And I think that is a huge problem. Could you maybe give some examples or an overview of what uh, the state of net neutrality looks like in different countries in the EU? So in the EU, we have a regulation that is a harmonized law that applies to all um, countries in the European economic area, so not the UK, but also Norway. Um, and that is, as I said, quite a good regulation. Um, then in other parts of the world, uh, in the US, the Trump administration repealed net neutrality. We, will, we have yet to see uh, how the incoming Biden administration that will be sworn in in just a few hours will deal with that issue. Um, and uh, I have hopes, but I would not 
bet on it that um, net neutrality gets back in the in the US. Um, there are several Latin American countries that have um, really good net neutrality legislation, um, like Chile. And uh, then in Asia, we have not really seen net neutrality legislation in that sense, except India. India is really the poster child of net neutrality. They have a very good regulatory framework in place. And uh, as in many areas of the world, these protections and safeguards only came into existence because there was a big grassroots push from activists on the ground, from internet users that stood up to protect the openness of their internet. Right. Um, we don't know much about the situation in Russia uh, or in China. As with many things, digital rights, those two countries are kind of um, blind spots, sadly. Um, there is a South Korean net neutrality regulation that is quite odd and very different from anything else that you've seen before. And there has been talk about net neutrality legislation in African countries. But to my knowledge, uh, and I, I might have missed something here in, in, in recent days because I was so busy with COVID, but I don't think that there is anything actually in law in, 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 in African countries so far. Um, that's, I think, briefly the situation as far as I know it. You've mentioned zero rating as one of the most blatant violations of net neutrality that's very common in the EU. How come, how come that's allowed? <laughs> it's a good question. I mean, the, the political argument when we were negotiating this uh, in the European institutions, we could actually get a good text in Parliament uh, that, that would prohibit zero rating, but in Council, uh, so with the member states, we lost it again and they were open for a bargain. You have to see that when the European Union made their net neutrality legislation, they also uh, abandoned roaming charges. So the type of extra cost that you incur when you use your phone in a foreign country. And so they took something away from the telecom companies, the roaming charges, and uh, they kind of had to give something back. That was the feeling with some politicians. Right. So that's why at the end they struck this dirty bargain of leaving this, the, the question of zero rating and economic discrimination left open in the legislation. Um, I also have to say that this is not something where the final word has been spoken. Um, in our legal interpretation, it would still be possible for a telecom regulator to prohibit zero rating. And um, even not looking at the net neutrality aspects, there are also other questions that one should ask about uh, whether or not these types of differentiating between traffic are actually in line with um, the way in which other legislations in Europe work, in particular data protection and privacy. And uh, we believe that ISPs actually are not even allowed to look into the contents of our communication. Um, you could maybe understand it like that. In order to count certain data for certain apps towards your monthly data volume and other data packages are excluded from that monthly data volume, mm -hmm. you need to know which data package belongs to which application. And sometimes that's not visible from the outside, but you really have to look inside of the data that's transmitted. And that's where you get into problems of privacy. 
um, that's so-called deep packet inspection methodology. So mm -hmm. where the ISP really looks deep into our traffic flows. And that's another angle of attack that um, needs to be explored further. And um, if we would have the time after COVID, then that's definitely something we want to look at. I wanted to ask, how has the pandemic affected the net neutrality? Um, it's a good question. Um, so at the beginning, um, we were, of course, worried that we would run into capacity problems. And, mm -hmm. um, but there, thankfully, all of the European regulators um, could uh, give a green light. And um, it was not just the national telecom regulators, it was also the European Commission, Thierry Petain, who at this point was just the newly accepted Commissioner for Digital Affairs in Europe. Uh, he also established a monitoring mechanism and throughout the pandemic, even in the harshest lockdown periods where millions of people used internet for home office and homeschooling, we never ran into capacity problems. One thing that has happened is that some um, video streaming operators have intentionally reduced the bandwidth. For example, a Netflix 4K video would not be delivered in 4K, but just HD. But yeah, those are things at the margin that also happened on the side of Netflix, on the side of the service providers and not really within the network. So they would also not classically fall in the scope of net neutrality. Mm -hmm. I have read an article you have shared on your Twitter from Handelsblatt about uh, provider special education tariffs. And actually, as far as I understood, provider special education tariffs with the flat rates for educational content also violate net neutrality, don't they? You're right. Um, that was a particular case in Germany where, um, again, it's a zero rating case. So um, there, it, it, um, the thing you mentioned is a particular type of, of uh, mobile data offering that was created uh, in conjunction between the uh, government officials for education and the telecom companies. And it was about connecting those children that don't have a sufficient internet connection at home to follow the school curriculum uh, from there. And the problem is that instead of giving the children of Hartz IV households, so the children from the poorest uh, unemployed types of households, those are the ones that we are speaking about here, um, a full internet connection that allows them to, at least in one thing in their life, be on equal footing with their peers, they gave them something really horrible. They gave them an internet connection that only allows them to use the services and apps that the school has allowed them to. And mm -hmm. you have to know that it is far more expensive and complex to reduce an internet connection so that it can only do a few services and apps. Whereas if you would just give those kids a flat line, a flat rate that gives them, I don't know, let it, let it give 20 gigabytes. You get 20 gigabytes in Austria for 10 euros a month. And mm -hmm. in Germany, it should not be more important. For a government entity, it should be far less, honestly. So instead of giving them a flat rate internet that allows them full participation in society, they only gave them this horrible, reduced zombie version of a mobile <laughs> data plan. And it's really a brainchild of a politician. And of course, the telecom companies were very happy to, to uh, get the softball 
because it allows them yet again to paint zero rating in a positive light. And that is a long-term political goal from the regulatory departments of big telecom companies. And at the beginning of the pandemic, we released guidelines, uh, like our suggestions from a digital rights perspective, what we should do now as we are all in the pandemic together. And one of the things that we pointed out very early is that if you want lockdowns to work, if you want the economy and education still to work in lockdown, and if you want people to stay sane, honestly, data volumes and data caps should not be an issue. That's what we suggested early on. It's a very interesting point. I didn't know it before that it's much more expensive to restrict the internet than like to make it simply open and flat rate for every type of content. A nice tactic point here. Do you know how they sell internet in Finland? Uh, no. <laughs> Um, Finland is a very interesting country because there it's almost impossible to get a mobile subscription that's not a flat rate. So you don't have data caps there. They distinguish the more expensive from the cheaper products by speed. So if you pay more, you get faster speeds. If you pay less, then uh, you get slower speeds, but you always have a flat rate. And it would be more truthful towards the consumer because it's more likely that they actually get the speeds that they are paying for instead of some arbitrary imaginative up to x hundred megabytes number that never comes close to the truth. I think that's a really interesting approach to pricing. And I believe those limitations really become clear when you look at Germany's data plans, for example, the Telekom's flagship 5G plans where you've got 24 gigabytes of data included for 100 euros, no less. And were you to actually use those full speeds, you could actually use it up in about 20 seconds flat. Yeah. And that's the big problem. I mean, um, and it's totally an arbitrary distinction. Data is not something that's consumed. Data is not something that's consumed. That's very important to highlight. The bits that you transmit exist on both sides either way because <laughs> they, they're just calculated. And um, again, like it is more, um, there, there's nothing physical that comes to mind as an analogy, but um, you really have to look at it from an economic perspective. Now, I have another question uh, in terms of, of commercial viability. You've said that filtering is a huge overhead on networking infrastructure and also an organizational overhead because you have to have contracts with the content partners for zero rating and so on. How come these big ISPs are pursuing that road? Um, because for them, it allows them to differentiate them from their competitors. If I started doing zero rating and these types of stream on like deals, stream on is a, a German version of the same project it, in the US, it's called binge on, Vodafone calls it Vodafone Pass. Um, our terminology was always open class based zero rating offers. And the thing is, you can still leverage your market position in order to get more applications to sign up towards your zero rating plan. If you offer a service in Germany and there is this zero rating product that helps you circumvent the arbitrarily low data volume caps in that country mm -hmm. and you have a ISP like Deutsche Telekom with a very big footprint on the market that serves millions and millions of customers, 
you have a strong incentive to sign up to that program. Although it creates um, a liability for you as a service, if you make a mistake in the identification of your service, Deutsche Telekom could bill you with the wrongfully uh, paid data volume. So if they make a mistake with the identification, it could become costly. What I'm getting at is these types of zero rating deals are bad for competition on both sides of the market. They reduce competition between the ISPs and they reduce competition between the apps, between the services. And, and that's why also from an economic perspective, regulators should clearly intervene here. Okay, it's quite interesting. It's quite a lot of information. But uh, if we go back to a user, what can I do as a user to support net neutrality? So, I mean, on a, on a practical level, like um, there are digital rights organizations that live off donations like ours. If you really want to support the cause, uh, donate to Epicenter Works, to Edry, to the digital rights organization that deals with the issues that you most care about. And uh, besides that, on an individual level, you can always measure your internet connection. Um, mm -hmm. There are projects like Measurement Lab. There are there is a, um, a tool from the telecom regulators, Barrick, that measures the internet connections that you have at home. Um, by measuring that, you don't just only um, know what uh, type of internet connection you have personally, but you also help create a better picture about the internet overall. Um, mm -hmm. And think about something like a weather report for the internet. Um, things like these are possible with aggregated data from individual measurements. Um, and uh, yeah, if there are problems, uh, then there are also telecom regulators that need to be poked, that need to hear from uh, unhappy users in order to start doing their job bluntly. I mean, we have many problems that are caused by inaction of regulators and the more people complain to them. Uh, the higher our chances are that the power of telecom companies is reined in. So I would definitely urge people to be vocal about um, what they expect from the internet to see. I mean, digital rights is one of these great fields where we are still writing the rules. Nothing is set in stone. This is all so new that we decide, our generation decide what privacy looks like, what copyright looks like, and also what, what type of internet we want to have. Mr. Loninger, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your expertise with us on this topic that perhaps is not very visible, but as users of the internet really affects us all. So thank you. Thank you for the great questions. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much. This was Internet Governance Explained. Thank you so much for listening. You can find our other episodes on all major podcasting platforms.